Acts chapter 2, and I'm not even going to stop. I'm going to trust that you know some of these places are in Assyria, and some of these places are in Africa, around Egypt, because it's going to say so. Acts chapter 2, this is the day of Pentecost. Verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia in Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia in Egypt and in the parts of Libya around Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews, and proselytes, Cretes, and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. There is a Syria and Egypt and a highway that had a rest area called Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. You know Acts chapter 8 says there was a man of great authority under Candace the Ethiopian. You know that Acts chapter 10 tells us about Cornelius of the Italian band. I want Acts chapter 11. Now Acts chapter 11 and verse 19. Now they which were scattered abroad, Acts eleven nineteen. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene. That's 800 miles west at the top tip of Africa. Do you have a map? Yeah. And when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus Notice that the gospel highway is opening up some extra rest areas for Gentiles to be involved. Another, let's go back to Zephaniah where we finished that first service. I am highly motivated for various reasons that we will finish on time. If you'll give me your time for a few minutes, we'll finish on time. But I want to review these these few things that might help you. I gave you a a timeline of the prophets. And so we're at Zephaniah, and we read verses 8 through 13, and they were wonderful verses. And I said they apply to the gospel time. And if you'll come back, I want you to know that Zephaniah is prophesying at the same time as Jeremiah and Ezekiel. I just want you to know that. Because look, right around the same time, the first verse of the book, the word of the Lord which came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hizkiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. That's Nebuchadnezzar's judgment coming. So, so you look at your Old Testament, you say, but Zephaniah is way at the end of it. Remember, it's a minor prophet. And so you have to run through the major prophets. Then you start over again with the minor prophets. And you get down to Zephaniah as a contemporary of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And so they talk about the same things. The destruction of Jerusalem and the nations around it. And then the gospel coming. I want it all to come together for you. So let's go to Isaiah 20 and see if we can get that to come together for us. Isaiah 20. Did we just see at Pentecost that there were men there from Mesopotamia? Were there Elamites there? Medes? Precious. Cyrene, look at your map. Do you know how far Cyrene is over there from Jerusalem? Beautiful. But do you know how far Greenville is west of Cyrene? Isaiah 20. Isaiah 20 is only six verses long. God warned Judah by Isaiah's attire and by the fulfillment of that object lesson 
not to look to Egypt or Ethiopia for help. I read to you the first two verses of Isaiah 20. In the year that Tartan came unto Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him and fought against Ashdod and took it, at the same time spake the Lord by Isaiah the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from off thy loins, and put off thy shoe from thy foot. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. That's Isaiah's symbolic lesson for Judah. First of all, Tartan is not a name. We don't believe it's a name. Bible students don't believe it's a name, and historians don't believe it's a name, but a title of the general in charge of the army. Because it's only in our Bibles twice, and this is one of the two, that uh, Sargon sent Tartan. And if you really want to know, it is Sennacherib right now who would become the king of Assyria. But we know from records that Sennacherib served as the crown prince and vice regent of Assyria under Sargon, his father, for a number of years. And so sometimes it will call, and this is so common in the Bible, it's why I mentioned to you, do you know the man named Simeon, Cephas, Simon, and Peter? Four different names used in the Bible. I just want to throw that out. This, it's not going to change a thing. I just want to tell you. Sargon is the ruling, reigning king, but his crown prince son, Sennacherib, and they're both in Palestine. And this is when he besieged Ashdod of the Philistines, one of their five capital cities, and took it. And at that time, the Lord told Isaiah to take off his sackcloth. The prophets wore rough garments. You know what John the Baptist looked like. You know what Elijah the Tishbite looked like. They both dressed in rough garments. They weren't in fine suits. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, because their ministries aren't in palaces. Their ministries are out with the common people, and so they wore their common clothing. But the Lord wanted Isaiah to take off his rough garment and to put to take it off and to take his shoes off his feet so that he would only have his undergarments left so that he would look very underclothed and naked and destitute and lost and having been taken away from his home without recourse of returning to his closet and getting some clothes because of the object lesson he's going to explain to us in the next two verses. But Ashdod is a, one of the capital cities of Philistia. Now we have Sargon and in the time of Isaiah because Isaiah couldn't do what he's doing unless he was alive. So this is Sargon and Sennacherib in Palestine on their expedition. And it's going to include Ashdod of the Philistines, Lachish of the Philistines. Remember what happens at Lachish? He gets news that Terhak is on the way with the Ethiopians. This is all in the Bible. He's going to take 46 fenced cities, and it's going to take him a while to do that. There are records now being found on a, on a yearly basis that are thrilling to read. And there is a record of Sennacherib's expedition against Ashdod and the 46 fenced cities. And I've told you about it before. When he gets to the end, it just kind of ends. Because he lost 185,000 soldiers in one night. But he mentions that I, I have Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. And Hezekiah was like a bird in a cage. And he said, I got tribute out of Hezekiah. Yes, he did get tribute out of Hezekiah. While he was at Lachish, Hezekiah sent to Sargon or Tartan or Sennacherib. I don't care which one you choose. It doesn't change a thing. He sent some gold that he had taken off the temple doors to buy some time. And he bought some time, and reading the rest of the Bible, we find out that he made shields and darts in abundance and redirected the water course so that the Assyrians wouldn't have water. Are you familiar with that? That's in the Bible, all in the Bible. And so when we look at this verse, Isaiah's alive, Hezekiah's alive, this is Sennacherib and the expedition of the Assyrians that is going to come against Jerusalem. And it came against Jerusalem. And then the siege was lifted, and he had to go face the Egyptians and the Ethiopians, some details of which we've never cared about in the past because we've never gone through Isaiah in the past. 
And now we want to look at some of those details that we've overlooked. That he did have to meet up with Terhaka of the Ethiopians. And we already know what happened there from chapter 18. It didn't go well for anyone. Because the Lord had sat back and prospered both armies to meet. Sennacherib won the day. And then his army lost at night. How many days there were in between, we don't know. We just know that those events happened. And so the Lord tells Isaiah, I need you to give Judah an object lesson, and I want you to start it now that the Assyrians are in the land. And I want you to keep it up for three years. And just for your information, the the siege of Ashdod is three years in front of the siege of Jerusalem. You say, how do you know that? Because of chronologers that have given their lives to sort out these dated events that are in the Bible with dated events in history, with the Bible always winning. You say, give me some of their names, okay? Their names are Anstey, Philip Morrow. Anstey did far more work. Philip Morrow just summarized Anstey's work. Floyd Nolan Jones, and these books are on the back shelf in our library, and you're welcome to look at them. Those are the three main ones. And all you have to do is pick up Floyd Nolan Jones, look in the, the index at the back, look up Sargon, go read a few pages, you're all set. Because these men have done the work from other chronologers before them. You know Hezekiah is alive and Isaiah is alive, right? By just the fact that he's telling him to do something and to do it the year that... Uh, Sargon arrives in Palestine and takes, okay, it shouldn't be that hard for you. Okay, what's the lesson? The object object was to take off his clothes. Here's the lesson, verses 3 and 4. And the Lord said, this is the Lord to Judah, Like as my servant Isaiah hath walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and wonder upon Egypt and upon Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians, prisoners, and the Ethiopians, captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, even with their buttocks uncovered, to the shame of Egypt. Egypt is going to be ashamed by the outcome of their encounter with the Assyrians because the Assyrians are going to defeat them, take a great number of prisoners, and those prisoners will not have a chance to return home and get better dressed. They're not going to have shoes. They're going to only be in some undergarments, and those undergarments are going to reveal their buttocks at times when they walk. That's the object lesson. So Judah, stop trusting and looking to Egypt. Do you remember that when Rabshakeh came and proclaimed against Hezekiah and the men on the walls, that he said, are you trusting in Egypt, that broken reed, that if you put your hand on it, it'll pierce your hand? Do you remember that? Yep. Okay, That was their fault. And it will continue to be the fault of Judah to look to Egypt because it was the land with shadowing wings. It was a mighty power. It had a reputation of a mighty power. And so Judah, having been shrunk down to basically one tribe, there was Benjamin, but his poor thing's never mentioned, the ten tribes have already gone into captivity under Assyria, but it was Shalmaneser before Sargon. Because it was eight years earlier that the ten tribes went into captivity. And so the king of Assyria is going to come and he's going to meet the help of Judah. Now we're not told. We're not told whether Hezekiah communicated with Egypt and the Egyptians or not. We're not told. We, We see Sennacherib and Rabshakeh making fun of him for doing so. So we wonder, was it just a rumor was it because everyone in the area always looked to Egypt for help? We don't know. And it doesn't, really, it doesn't matter. Because they were thinking it anyway. Okay? We're not told. Hezekiah. Do you know what the Bible says about Hezekiah of all the kings of Judah? He trusted in the Lord more than any other king. Right. He trusted in the Lord. So I don't like him, thinking of him sending an ambassador to Terhaka of the Ethiopians, come and help me. I don't know if God's going to deliver me. I can't see him doing that. But would other Jews do it? In a heartbeat. Do you remember Ahaz, the king before Hezekiah? Hezekiah's father. Ahaz is being faced by a confederate army 
of Syrians and Israelites. And so he sent to Tiglath-Pileser of the Assyrians, come and help me. It was a common... You know, we, people look to other men for their help. And you need to ask yourself, I need to ask myself, in what part of my life am I putting my trust in men and not in the Lord? Now, you say, well, what about Hezekiah sending money to the king of Assyria when he's at Lachish? Oh, that was just good strategy. Because he, he used that time, he used that time to prepare his defenses. And he was trusting the Lord in the matter. And that's, that's how we understand the life of Hezekiah. But now you can understand the object lesson. You know, preachers do not have that refined of manners as is commonly presumed or presented in seminaries. You know what? I've already mentioned Elijah, the Tishbite, and how he dressed. John the Baptist and how he dressed. Where John the Baptist preached. And now here we and we're going to run into some more about Isaiah. And there's events of Jeremiah and Ezekiel as well where they're going to do some pretty strange things to communicate a point. And the point they're communicating is a sign and a wonder. A sign and a wonder. What's the sign and the wonder? The mighty helpers of Judah are going to fail and be defeated. So let's go to the next two verses, 5 and 6. And they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia their expectation and of Egypt their glory. The Jews, anyone in, of the Canaanites, anyone of the Moabites, Edomites, Arabians, that thought Terhaka of the Ethiopians and Terhaka of the Egyptians could deliver them are going to be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, and of Egypt, their glory. Now, I've shared some things with you, and I want to make this point again, and I've said it so many times. Do you know that it's different for me to preach than ever before in the history of the world in this regard. Anything I say, you can type into a Google search box. In the past, with illiterate congregations, or congregations that were literate but had no books, a preacher could say anything. You can go home, type in Blue Nile, type in Terhaka, type in Onias IV, O-N-I-A-S IV, the legitimate priest of God in Jerusalem who built a temple in Leontopolis in Egypt and how it was destroyed. Go read it. That's the wonderful thing. You can check up everything I say. Where's Elam? Type in Elam. It's going to give you maps and enough to read until you're blind, cross-eyed. Cross because there's all that information out there now. Sargon, not so much, but Sargon's enough. And it will tell you that Sargon was not understood until just recently. They shall be afraid. This general pronoun, they, definitely includes the Jews of Judah. Not necessarily Hezekiah. We're giving him a pass, a hall pass. And they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation of Egypt, their glory, because they would have been taken prisoners because they lost the battle with Sennacherib, Sargon, the Tartan of the Assyrians, lost. And the inhabitant of this isle shall say in that day, Behold, such is our expectation, whither we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and how shall we escape? So I want you to notice, the Ethiopians and Egyptians are taken prisoner, but they haven't escaped yet. So we've got a small gap of time between Sennacherib defeating the Egyptians and Ethiopians and losing his army. Are you with me? You say, that's awfully tight reading. Is there any other way to handle 20 and 18 and some of these chapters and some tight reading? Okay, I want you to ask me a question. Pastor, I have a question. The inhabitant of this isle. Are you trying to say that that's the Jews in Jerusalem? Absolutely, most definitely. No other options. Why, why are they called an aisle? It's a similitude. Right. Listen, if you don't like aisle there, what are you going to do when I start the next chapter? The burden of the desert of the sea. Get used to these similitudes. I don't like them any more than you do. But we both love them, don't we? Because God gave them to us. And he told us that he was going to use similitudes. 
the inhabitant of this isle. This. Do you know what this is when it's used like this? It's a demonstrative adjective. And Isaiah is the speaker. And Isaiah is saying, this right around me is the isle. The inhabitant of this isle shall say in that day, Behold, such is our expectation, whither we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. Look at what we expected out of them and what we got. We expected deliverance instead of them being defeated and being captives. You say, well, how are they an isle? Well, in a sense, there's, listen, there's several. God always gets the benefit of the doubt. And if I can give him three in my outline, I'm content. If I can give him ten, I'm happy. Because, see, he's always right. And this is, every, the care here is about Judah. It's a sign of wonder upon Egypt and upon Ethiopia, but it was something Isaiah presented to his people. They're the isle. Okay, think about it for a minute. What's the water on the east side of Judah? It's the Dead Sea and the Jordan. Dead Sea and the Jordan. What's on the west side? Mediterranean Sea. What's on the north? Sea of Galilee or Sea of Tiberias? I don't, go, I don't, I don't run it this way anyway myself. I'm just giving you something to think about. But you really want to talk about an isle? It's the worshipers of God in the city of Jerusalem surrounded by pagan nations that were out to destroy them. And that isle, all alone by itself, even now not even having its own fenced and walled cities with all the, inhabit with all the inhabitants having fallen back to Jerusalem, it's an isle. And whatever expectation that some of them had to get out of protection out of Ethiopian Egypt, they're not going to get it. How shall we escape? Behold, such is our expectation, whether we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, no matter where we look, no matter where we go, no matter where we think we're going to get our help, there isn't any. How are we going to escape? So we've got this little relapse between defeating the Ethiopians and Egyptians and wiping out the army of Assyria, or they wouldn't be whining like this, would they? They'd be celebrating. So whether it's a day, a week, a month, three months, we don't know. And it doesn't matter. Isaiah went around for three years because this was all building up to this climax. And then the final climax was 185,000 soldiers dead in one night. And so they did have help, but it was from the Lord. Right. And it was because of two men, chiefly Hezekiah and Isaiah. Right. Hezekiah is the one that laid the letter before the Lord. Isaiah is the one that prayed along with him. And between the two of them, they didn't need anybody else at that prayer meeting. Mm -hmm. Isaiah 20. Okay, let's come to the easy one. I speak as a fool. Isaiah 21. It's the burden of Babylon through the first 10 verses. You see, but we had the burden of Babylon back in 13. Yes, and he just keeps going over these nations that are going to get pummeled. I gave you some chapters in yesterday's preparatory email of how many times Egypt is referenced as the object of his wrath and the burden that is upon Egypt over and over, not only in Isaiah, but also in Jeremiah and also in Ezekiel. Are they mentioned over and over? But so this is Babylon. It's so easy to figure it out. And I don't care about the words, the burden of the desert of the sea, in the sense that they don't bother me a bit. I'll make them fit any way I have to, any way I need to, because I'm going to give God the benefit of the doubt by who he calls against them. In verse 2, it's the Elamites, which are the Persians, and the Medes. It's the Medes and the Persians. And it says so down in verse 9 that it's Babylon under consideration because the watchman says in verse 9, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. So we know who it is. Now, if I sent you maps yesterday. Were you able to find Elam over there to the east of Babylon? That's Persia. It's its largest province. But sometimes Persia is called Elam because Elam's its largest province and the most important province. Just like the ten tribes of Israel are called Ephraim, which is their principal and largest tribe. That's why the two tribes are called Judah, and there's no reference to Benjamin, because what matters is Judah, and what matters is Elam, the significant province of the Persians. And then 
it says the Medes in verse 2 as well. And I hope you saw that on your map. On your map, can you see Cyrene at the northern tip of Africa? Can you see the Libyans? Can you see Moab? Can you see Edom? The Arabians that have the Arabian Peninsula, now it's called Saudi Arabia. And there's Elam to the east, and the Medes to the north and the east. Elam and the Medes are Iran today. Babylon would be Iraq today. Babylon is in Iraq, although it's just mounds. The little town next to it is called Hilla, and it's in Iraq. Anyway, here we are at Isaiah 21. I'm going to read the first two verses. The burden of the desert of the sea. As whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it cometh from the desert, from a terrible land. A grievous vision is declared unto me. The treacherous dealer dealeth treacherously, and the spoiler spoileth. Go up, O Elam, besiege, O Media. All the sighing thereof have I made to cease. I am going to end all the sighing of those people and those nations that have been hurt by Babylon because I am ordering Elam or the Persians and Media or the Medes to battle against Babylon. This is the burden of Babylon. And it's called the burden of the desert of the sea. Just trust and then learn the prophetic similitude that is here to describe the inland city of Babylon. It's called a desert because it's in the middle of a desert, an ugly plain, and it turned to be an even uglier plain. It's called a plain of the sea or a desert of the sea for the Euphrates and all the canals that were built around it for agricultural purposes, for running through the city, around the city, in double moats. There were just canals and water everywhere. So why can't it be called the desert of the sea? The southern portion of Mesopotamia, where the Tigris and the Euphrates come together in other rivers, is basically one great big morass, which is a big swamp. Look at a map. There's not much good things down there. Though Babylon was 300 miles from the Persian Gulf, it was a large swampy area, and so in prophetic language, we can call it the burden of the desert of the sea. You say, wow, you really trust context, don't Yes, you're on it. I will take the context of 2 and 9 over any wordage after the word burden in verse 1. And I will make it fit. And I don't have to work very hard. Because it is a swampy, watery area. The Euphrates runs right through it. You say, can a river be called a sea? We've already learned that. Isaiah chapter 11. Okay, it's Babylon. You can see that from verse 2. Because I hope that you can see on your map Elam and Media. And Elam is a province of Persia. That's the Persians and the, Media, the Medes coming against the city of Babylon. Now he says he has a grievous vision. Isaiah has a grievous vision that, is that he mentions it right there in the beginning of verse 2. A grievous vision is declared unto me. And he says, The treacherous dealer dealeth treacherously. Now he's describing something that's happening, not something that will happen, but something that is happening, and the Persians and the Medes coming are something as a consequence of it. So there's, so there's some event right in front of Cyrus the Great and Darius the Mede coming into the city of Babylon that is really irritating Isaiah. Was there an event right in front of Babylon, I mean, Persia and the Medes coming into Babylon that irritate us, even today reading about it. Belshazzar, yes. Because notice the words, the treacherous dealer, that's Babylon, dealeth treacherously. The spoiler, Babylon, spoileth. So the treachery and the spoil that they were known for they are taking to unprecedented levels. And what is that? The vessels they treacherously took out of the temple of Jerusalem and the spoil that they took out of Judea, they are now toasting their gods of wood and stone. 
And I know it's a little obscure right now because you're just looking at verse 2. So let's move to verses 3 through 9, and I'm going to read this vision to you. 3 through 9. Therefore are my loins filled with pain. This is a vision declared to Isaiah in the person of Belshazzar, starting at verse 3. Therefore are my loins filled with pain. Why? Because a hand came out and wrote on the wall, Pangs have taken hold upon me as the pangs of a woman that travaileth. I was bowed down at the hearing of it. I was dismayed at the seeing of it. My heart panted. Fearfulness affrighted me. The night of my pleasure, Belshazzar's feast, hath he turned into fear unto me. He had said, prepare the table. Watch in the watchtower. Eat, drink. That's his party. Now, he says, arise, ye princes, and anoint the shield. An alarm. For thus hath the Lord said unto me, Go, set a watchman, this is through Isaiah, but making it very dramatic. It's called a hypotyposis. When you word things in such a way to make it super dramatic by being in the person of Belshazzar and in the person of a watchman. This is Isaiah. It's Belshazzar that's terrified. It's Belshazzar that said, I had a night of pleasure planned and it's been ruined. Someone's rained on my party. That's what he's saying here in these verses. Prepare the table. Who's, what would that mean to Isaiah? Prepare the table. This is Belshazzar to Isaiah. Prepare the table. Watch in the watchtower. Yes, we've set a watch, but let's eat and let's drink and let's have a party. Then he says, arise ye princes and anoint the shield because of whatever happened up there in verses 3 and 4 that's terrifying him. And the watchman, verse 7, And he saw a chariot with a couple of horsemen, a chariot of asses, and a chariot of camels. And he hearkened diligently with much heed. This vision that Isaiah is getting has a watchman watching over the city of Babylon with great diligence and much heed to catch every detail. And so we, we see three chariots. A chariot with a couple of horsemen, Two horses with men on them, then a chariot of asses and a chariot of camels. And he hearkened diligently with much heed. Verse 8. And he cried, A lion! A lion! My Lord, I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime, and I am set in my ward whole nights. I am a faithful watchman. I do not miss things. I do not sleep on my watch, but I see something very dangerous. I see a lion coming in the form of a chariot with two horsemen on it and a chariot of asses and a chariot of camels. Go Google as to what animals the Medes and the Persians used in their wagons and in their chariots in addition to horses. Just don't, I'm tired of telling you but I'm telling you because I've already done the work for you. It's just beautiful. You know who this is already because of verse 2. You know exactly who it is. And you know why there are two horsemen, don't you? Because one stands for Cyrus the Persian and one stands for Darius the Mede. It's very simple. A lion! My Lord! I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime and I am set in my ward whole nights. I see something dangerous coming and behold, here cometh a chariot of men with a couple of horsemen. And he answered and said, this is the watchman, Babylon is fallen, is fallen and all the graven images of her gods he hath broken unto the ground. Praise the Lord. This is a vision. This is not Isaiah feeling sorry for Babylon because the terminology in those verses of 3 through 9 doesn't allow it. 
the terminology is better seen as Belshazzar and that being presented to Isaiah as a vision going through the eyes of Belshazzar and his plans for the night that were, re- that were messed up by God's hand coming out on the wall and then by a lion coming through. Listen, those Persians and those Medes who took the city from both ends, they had two nobles of the Babylonians that defected to them and had been, this has been part of their plan. So the Cyrus the Persian came from the south side of the city up up the Euphrates River in just a little bit of water. Darius the Mede came down and those two noblemen took them to the palace of Belshazzar because you would have gotten lost in that huge city. Their names are known. And there's Belshazzar. You know, he put a chain on Daniel's neck. He should have had a hold of Daniel's ankles. He should have had a hold of Daniel's ankles and begged for help. Instead, he hangs the chain around Daniel's neck and there's such a large commotion. I've told you this. There's such a large commotion because the soldiers of the Persians and the Medes, by plan, acted like they were revelers because it was a huge party in Babylon that night. And you know, the Bible tells us about that huge party that when Babylon was taken, they were drunk. And their men had already been told this is going to be easy, the populace is going to be drunk. Just act loud and noisy like revelers. Belshazzar heard it, said, open the doors and find out what's going on out there. You know, why are the, why are the inhabitants so close to the palace? <laughs> Medes and the Persians took it in one night, and we just rejoice in that story. Thank you, Lord. And so it's a vision. Isaiah 21 is a vision from verse 3 down through verse 9. And if you read it carefully... I hope that it will come to you so that you can see it's a vision, especially verse 5. Prepare the table. What, is, what, is, what would Isaiah be saying that for? If Isaiah is the one fainting and weeping and, and fearful and acting like a woman about this invasion that's coming, why would he say, set the table? Prepare the table. Watch in the watchtower. Isaiah wouldn't say that. Belshazzar said it. Set a guard and break out the booze and break out the instruments from the temple in Jerusalem. I want to make this so clear to you that you love the Bible story of Daniel chapter 5 when those instruments were brought out. Belshazzar did not ask for instruments from Jerusalem. He did not ask for Jewish instruments. He asked for those vessels that were used in the worship, in the direct worship of the Lord Jehovah God of the Jews. And he wanted to toast with them. And he met exactly what he should have met that night. And so, verse 2, the treacherous dealer dealeth treacherously, and the spoiler spoileth. What What is it talking about? That can't be the Persians and the Medes. They haven't been treacherous or spoiling yet. They're about to, but they haven't done it yet. So who has been treacherous and spoiling already, but now takes it to a new level? Belshazzar and the Babylonians. And if you read down through it, it's just a beautiful, beautiful vision. You're inside a party that you weren't allowed to, you didn't have a ticket to get in, but you're inside the party. And you're seeing it through the eyes of Belshazzar, then you're seeing it through the eyes of a watchman. And the watchman says, "I, I I see a chariot and two horsemen, I see a chariot of asses, I see a chariot of camels. I see a lion. Lion! In the vision to Isaiah, I've always been a faithful watchman. Day or night, I'm faithful and I take care of details. I see danger. Babylon is fallen. Praise the Lord. Oh, yes. And you know what? Zach, I remember. You know, when you go to Revelation chapter 18, and so you get these very same words in the book of Revelation about mystical Babylon. Babylon is fallen, is fallen, which is why we sing a song, Babylon is fallen. Because it comes from here, and it comes from Revelation, literal, historical Babylon, and in Revelation, mystical, religious, spiritual Babylon, the Roman Catholic Church. Oh, my threshing! And the corn of my floor. Threshing in the Bible is when you beat the chaff out of grain. 
and it's what God does to his enemies. And so he's describing this little burst right here. Oh, my threshing and the corn of my floor. The Lord God of hosts has just beaten Babylon to powder. That which I have heard of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have I declared unto you. Isn't that? So there's the little conclusion there in verse 10. What God told me, declared to me through this vision, I've just declared to you. That's it. God has threshed Babylon. So we come to some very express words. Verses 11 and 12. Heavenly Father, no one loves your words more than I do. No one, anywhere, at any time, except your son. And for those of you that read John chapter 10 this past week, I tried to point out to you in the update that Jesus Christ loved every word of God. And he made an argument against those Jews that were accusing him of blasphemy. He appealed to the fact that God called civil rulers gods. And he said, that has to be the right word because scripture cannot be broken. And so he made an argument on one word, gods. John 10, 35, because scripture cannot be broken. I want to be right there next to him. I love every word of God. So whatever I just said about verses 11 and 12, it's just to get your attention and have a light moment before we look at two heavy verses. Isaiah 21, 11 and 12. A couple of weeks ago, I loved walking through the house. And I actually did this to a couple church members when they stopped by or called me. And I love doing it to Sherry. I'd read her these two verses. Tell me what you think. Tell me what it means. Here's what it sounds like. The burden of Duma. He calleth to me out of Seir. Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? The watchman said, The morning cometh, and also the night. If ye will inquire, inquire ye. Return, come. Is that really in the Bible? Oh, I said something earlier in the first service that I finished, I I believe I failed to complete. Maybe I did, but since I'm failing now to remember whether I failed to complete, I'll do it anyway. Um, I wanted to say to you that God's word can humble anyone in a few minutes. (laughs) You know, it's easy. It's easy to type the church and tell the church, we're going to start a series on Isaiah. Then you hit two verses like this. Do you want me to read them again? Do you think it will come to you the second time? Okay, here it is. And I want to, Isaiah 21, verses 11 and 12. It's the burden of Edom. The reason that we know that it's Edom, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. The reason we know that it's Edom, because of that word seer. Duma is of dubious, meaning, because it's very hard to find it defined in the Bible. Seir is not at all. Mount Seir was territory given to Edom, and it is repeated over and over and over through your Old Testaments. So we know where it is. The burden of Duma. He calleth to me out of Seir. So we know that it is a burden of Edom. Now, in trying to figure out those words, why the repetition? Why the repetition? And why, if ye will inquire, well, it sounds like they're inquiring, but it sounds like there's some mocking going on in here. And if you know about Edom, they were mockers. They were mockers of the, of, of the Jews of Judah. And so this is mocking the watchman. Do you know, by reading your Bibles, that the Jews mocked the prophets by saying, Hey, what's the burden of the Lord today? Have you ever read that in your Bible? They would make fun of it. They made fun of it enough to where God told Jeremiah, don't you ever participate with them in that game of them asking what's the burden of the Lord. I'll tell you what the burden of the Lord is. I'm going to destroy them for making fun of the burden of the Lord. It's serious business when the Lord says the burden of the Lord. Here it's the burden of Duma, which is Edom, the Edomites, the resentful, envious, enemies of the Jews, and they're making fun of the watchman. Watchman, 
What of the night? What's going to happen to us in the night? Watchmen, what of the night? It is a mocking repetition, making fun of the watchmen. What's going to happen to us? The watchman said, The morning cometh. Oh, you'll wake up tomorrow morning. You'll wake up. The morning comes. It'll be okay. You'll think you're okay. And then the night cometh. And if ye will inquire, seriously, inquire. Return. Come. Come back to me sincerely and with repentance, and I'll explain to you what's going to happen to Edom. But since you want to mock me, all I'm going to say to you is, morning's going to come and you're going to think everything's fine, because that's what morning does for men that have to stand watch at night. When morning comes, it's wonderful relief. But then the night's going to come. If you want to seriously inquire, then come and inquire, repent, and return. I'm always honest with you. If you ask me, would you bet your eternal destiny on that? I would say I've bet my eternal destiny on the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. I just gave you the best of a lot of effort. So I come to the next one, Arabia. It's on your map. Saudi Arabia today is called that, but it's that Arabian Peninsula. The burden upon Arabia. Verse 13 of Isaiah chapter 21. The burden upon Arabia. In the forest in Arabia shall ye lodge, O ye traveling companies of Dedanim. The inhabitants of the land of Tema brought water to him that was thirsty. They prevented with their bread him that fled. For they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, and from the bent bow, and from the grievousness of war. For thus hath the Lord said unto me, Within a year, according to the years of an hireling, and all the glory of Keter shall fall, shall fail. And the residue of the number of archers, the mighty men of the children of Keter, shall be diminished, for the Lord God of Israel hath spoken it. And there ends our four chapters with the words, For the Lord God of Israel hath spoken it. We want everything we believe, everything we do, to be based on, For the Lord God of Israel hath spoken it. And so these four chapters, though this has been stated several other times in the midst of those four chapters, we have this concluding statement. This, these are the Arabians. These are the Arabians to the south of Israel. And verse 13, they're going to be hiding in a forest. Usually they're traveling in their caravans. Because, and it says so, O ye traveling companies of Dedanim. But instead, they're going to be taking up permanent residence in a forest for protection because the context tells us that. The inhabitants of the land of Tema, another small region in Arabia, brought water to him that was thirsty. They prevented with their bread him that fled. So the Arabians had to flee flee in haste because there was a threatening enemy that used swords. And it's Sennacherib. Sennacherib is in the area... Now remember, this says one year. Remember Moab from last Sunday? Three years. The years of a hireling. What is the years of a hireling? Exactly, three years. Because they tend not to work overtime for free. So they want to be released based on their contract of labor. I explained that last time because of chapter 16, the last two verses, 13 and 14, it said three years. We read a long prophecy that would have to be Nebuchadnezzar against Moab. Then we read a one-word prophecy that within three years, they would have their glory diminished. And the Arabians are going to be diminished by Sennacherib, but Arabia is still one of Nebuchadnezzar's gifts from God. Because when you go to Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 27 and read the long list of those nations given to Nebuchadnezzar, Arabia pops back up in there. Just... I'm just sharing that with you. This is a diminishing of them. Notice what it says in verse 17. And the residue of the number of archers, the mighty men of the children of Keter, shall be diminished. For the Lord God of Israel hath spoken it within one year's time of this prophecy being made by Isaiah. And so we choose to make it Sennacherib, knowing that a hundred years hence, Nebuchadnezzar is going to deal a more serious blow against them. 
But notice here, it doesn't say they're, going to end, they're not going to be a people in the future. It doesn't say they're going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. It says they'll be diminished. They're mighty men. The best they have, the best they put forward will be diminished. So verse 14 says that if you had to have help from others to come and bring you water and bread because you were fleeing from the grievousness of war in verse 15. You know, I'm 62 years old now. When I was 12, I loved war. And when I was 16, I loved war. When I was 18, 20, I loved war. And then I started to, well, let's just keep going. Into my 20s, I loved war. But then as you get older, you hate war. Mm -hmm. And I love this little description of it right here. Grievousness of war. Mm -hmm. Notice that. That they're running from that. For they fled from the swords. The swords of the Assyrians. From the drawn sword. And from the bent bow. And from the grievousness of war. They did not want to engage in a war. And if you can run from a war, run from it. Run, running from it only hurts your pride. Running from it can save you from destruction. It's the grievousness of war. For thus hath the Lord said unto me, within a year, according to the years of an hireling, that means a year, and all the glory of Keter shall fail. Their glory and the residue of the number of archers, the mighty men of the children of Keter, these are tribes of Arabia, you can find them in the Bible, shall be diminished, for the Lord God of Israel hath spoken it. There's Isaiah chapters 18, 19, 20, and 21. May God communicate to you by his spirit and by his word that there's a God in heaven who's the God of nations and he is the God of kings and he's the God of gods and he knows exactly what makes you tick. He knows what makes Egypt prosperous and he can take it away until your whole economy is destroyed. He knows your gods, he knows who you trust in and he is our father in heaven. So for two reasons we ought to benefit, just two at the moment, two reasons we ought to benefit he will take care of us against any enemy. Right. Number two, we should trust him as we watch the political maneuvers going on in the world and realize, I think I'll sit back and take my rest. And I'll shine on them a little bit and let them build their armies up, but I have a different outcome than they're thinking. And the outcome is going to hurt them both and bless my church. Amen. The American Revolution... I'm not going to debate it or argue it. The Lord used it. Were there godly men on both sides? Yes. Did America have a civil war that crushed that, the grievousness of war? You want to talk about the grievousness of war to an American? It isn't World War II. It's the civil war. Right. We lost such a larger percentage of our population in the civil war. It's grievous. And there were godly men on both sides. And we trust the Lord. He, had, he, he said our nation needed that. And if he said it, we can, we, when we look back, we can't see things that our nation was doing then that they're not doing worse now by, a, what, a hundred times, a thousand times? We need to learn to sit back with him and trust and to call upon his name Pray for our nation like we do on a diligent basis and see that God takes care of his enemies. And he is creative, he is diligent, he is thorough. And you want to learn about history? It's his story. It's his story. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.